Well, tonight we're going to do a survey of the last book of the Old Testament. So if you'd like to turn there, it's easy to find. You just go to Matthew chapter 1 and then turn backwards a few pages. This book has a special place in the Old Testament canon. It has the privilege of being last. Last words are important words, as Dwight says sometimes. This book comes at the end of 1,000 years of Scripture being authored and represents about uh, you know, the end of a 3,600-year period from creation all the way to uh, the silent years. A lot has happened. God has created the world. He has judged it with a flood. He has preserved Noah and his family. He has picked Abraham, made promises to Abraham, including his descendant returning the earth to a blessed state. He's picked Isaac and Jacob, grown their family into a large nation in Egypt, used Moses to rescue them out of slavery, given the people of Israel the law through Moses, given them the land promised to Abraham under Joshua, delivered the people from the results of sin via judges, allowed them to have a king, picked a king for them, David, to rule the people, promised David's house the throne forever, sent prophet after prophet to warn the people as succeeding kings and people went through cycles of idolatry and revival, removed the people from the land of Assyria and Babylon in judgment, and then brought them back just as he had said that he would through his prophets. God has been very busy all throughout the Old Testament. And now at the very end, he would speak to the people one more time before going silent for 400 years. So this brings us to our study, our study of the famous Italian prophet, Malachi. What did Malachi have to say? It's very simple. Love, pasta. Love, pasta. Now, at this moment, I can see some of you are getting concerned. <laughs> You're thinking, Dwight's gone, and the quality has gone down. Uh, it's not as bad as you think, okay? It's not as bad as you think. Love, pasta, that's my outline, okay? So there's six points, six points in the outline of my overview of Malachi here that we're going to talk about. And the first word is love. That's a huge theme in the book, God's faithful love. And then the P in pasta stands for priests. A stands for adultery. S stands for sending. T stands for turning back to God in repentance. And A is assurance given by God to the God-fearing remnant. Okay? So I know, it's cheesy. And you're thinking, how long did he noodle on? The I'm done. I'm done. <clears throat> love of God for Israel does not change. The priests are rebuked for evil offerings and misleading teaching. Adultery against God and Jewish wives is condemned. Sending a messenger to introduce the sovereign Savior, turn back to God in repentance, is the command of God towards the end. And then the last thing is assurance given to the God-fearing remnant. So that's the outline I'm going to be following. And we'll talk about each of those. We won't get to every verse in this short book, but we'll try to hit... The, these main themes. Our goal here tonight is to come away with a good understanding of God's message to the people through the prophet Malachi and how we can learn from the example being set forth. 
we will be moving quickly through the book, so you might just want to stay there. I'll read a couple of cross-references, but I would just stay in, in Malachi, in your text. So let's talk about the timing of the book. As I said, God was about to go silent. Malachi wrote sometime around 440 B.C. This would have been during the time of Nehemiah, but probably during a time that Nehemiah was away. He was probably back at Persia serving the king. The Persians had conquered the Babylonians and were ruling all the known world at that time. Yet under their rule, God had worked in marvelous ways to give his people tremendous favor in the sight of the Persian kings. The people had been allowed to return to the land under the leadership of Zerubbabel in 536 B.C. and resumed their worship of God at his altar in Jerusalem in 515. In 479, a Jewish woman named Esther became queen of Persia. Well, I missed it. Before then, they had completed the second temple in 515. Uh, Ezra, the priest, had returned to the land with full authority from the Persian king to teach and to promote obedience to the Mosaic law. And not only that, he had been given full protection and full authority around the surrounding nations, over the surrounding nations, by the king of Persia. In 445, Nehemiah came to Jerusalem and oversaw the rebuilding of its walls. For the God-fearing Jews, this was an exciting time to see God's sovereign hand at work and his mercy towards his people. Daniel had already told them they would be under the thumb of the Gentiles until Messiah came, and they knew this would be 400 years yet in the future or so. Yet God had worked to allow them autonomy in their own land. As Ezra wrote, in Ezra 9, 8 and 9, But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God might brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. To the God-fearing Jew, this was a precious opportunity to live the life that God had promised his people in his word, even though they were still under the authority of the rulers of Persia. But sadly, many were not God-fearing. At the time Malachi writes, it has only been about 75 years after the temple has been rebuilt. But the priests have become corrupt. The leaders have become involved in idolatry. And the people have become unfaithful to God. So God sends one more messenger. Let's look at verse 1 of Malachi 1. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Well, who is Malachi? The short answer is, we don't know. That's easy. We're moving on. No, uh, the name Malachi means my messenger. This is a very appropriate title because the theme of God's messenger is a major theme in this book. Regarding Malachi himself, I have this from John MacArthur. Some have suggested that the book was written anonymously, noting that the name means my messenger or the Lord's messenger, and this could be a title rather than a proper name. However, since all other prophetic books have historically identified their author in the introductory heading, this suggests that Malachi was indeed the name of the last Old Testament writing prophet 
in Israel. Jewish tradition identifies him as a member of the great synagogue that collected and preserved the scriptures. So that's about all that we know about Malachi. He's God's messenger. So let's look at his message. The rest of the book will be his message. The message comes in the form of an argument. Malachi writes as if he were God's attorney and the people of Israel the defiant defendant, contending every point. There is a stubbornness and a stiff-neckedness about their responses to the evidence and the charges of God's messenger. They question God at every point. In their response to him, their response to him is so crooked that God goes so far as to say he was wearied with their words in chapter 2. But as is his prerogative, God will make the opening remarks as well as the closing argument. So let's look at his message. The first point in the outline is love. Love deserves its own word in my outline here. The love of God for Israel does not change. Verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is Esau not Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals in the desert. God starts out with pointing out his faithful love for Israel. His love was basic and fundamental to their very existence. All through their history, even amidst them provoking God to anger and judgment, God has continually reminded them of his love and that restoration and peace coming from God is always in their future. The Lord loved them above all other peoples. Like a husband, God has chosen Israel and in a very real sense forsaken all other nations. It is this faithfulness to Israel and forsaking all other nations that God will hone in on. In order to drive home the point, he mentions Jacob's older twin brother, Esau, the father of the Edomites. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. The nation of Israel is descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jacob had a twin brother, Esau. There were two sons in Rebekah's womb. One would become the inheritor of God's promises to Abraham, involving a nation and a seed that would eventually be the Messiah, and the other would not. God chose Jacob. God said the younger would rule the older even before they were born. So strong are the implications of this love that God had for Jacob that Paul uses it in Romans chapter 9 as the key argument that the future of Israel ultimately does not depend on Israel, but rather on God's compassion for them, his mercy for them, his love for them, because he chose them. The people Malachi writes to were fully aware of how God's love had been manifested towards them in recent history. Israel had been ripped out of the land by Assyria in judgment several hundred years prior. Judah had been carried off to Babylon 170 or so years before Malachi's writing. This was a direct result of their unrepentant turning from God to idolatry. But God had brought them back into the land. Just as he had promised, he would through the words, or just as he promised he would, through the words of Isaiah and Jeremiah. The Jews were there. They were rebuilding. They had authorization and protection from the highest authority on the earth, the king of Persia. 
their ability to worship God was restored, and he had been a wall of protection to them. God had brought them back to their land and cared and provided for them in the process. What about Edom? What about the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, Jacob's brother? Look at verse 4. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God has faithfully loved his people, Israel. They only need to look beyond their border to see the contrast between themselves and a nation God has not chosen, even though they were once twins in the same womb. After declaring his love for them, God now moves to condemning the wrong worship and the wrong teaching of Israel's priests. So here's our P. P is for priests. The priests are rebuked for their evil offerings and for misleading the nation. Verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts? O priests who despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? You know, if someone calls you a father, you would expect some respect, right? If someone calls you master, you would expect some respect. But the priests who were purportedly to be in the position of representing the people to God and God to the people were despising God. They were showing him no respect. The temple they were serving in was only about 75 years old. It had been built by the hands of courageous men led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua the priest, Haggai and Zechariah the prophets. It had been funded and supported and protected by the king of Persia at God's sovereign command. Yet here the priests are already drifting into the aimless motions of ritualistic compliance. They had become masters at meeting the minimal standard of just sort of looking like they were doing what they were supposed to do before the Lord. They were grossly in the wrong on at least two accounts. The first was in their worship of God. Verse 7, By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? God asks, would you take what you give to me and give it to your Persian governor? Failing to follow God's instructions for worship revealed a heart attitude that was evil. Drop down to verse 9. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us, with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Their offerings were evil, showing contempt for God, yet they prayed to God expecting an answer. However, just like God rejected Cain's offering, he rejected their offering and their prayers. Verse 10, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, 
and I will not accept an offering from your hand. The Lord wishes at least one of them would have enough care and enough thought and enough regard for God to just shut the whole operation down. It was shoddy, it was unpleasant, and it was unacceptable. Verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God had promised Abraham that his seed, that in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Yes, God chose Israel and forsook all other nations to make them a holy people for his own possession. But the ultimate goal in doing that for Israel was to bring about the restoration of the people from all the nations on the earth. He was going to work through Israel to bless all the nations. God comes back to this reality because it will happen. This reality stands in stark contrast to the shoddy worship the priests were offering to the living God. The second indictment of the priests was regarding their teaching ministry. Drop down to chapter 2, verse 7. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. A priest is supposed to be God's messenger. He is supposed to represent God to the people. A good example of what a priest is supposed to be would be Ezra, who was evidently off the scene at this point. We are told that Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses and that the good hand of his God was upon him. In Ezra 7.10, we read, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Ezra had a heart to obey God. He wanted to be God's messenger to teach others to do the same. Verse 8, But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my paths, but show partiality in your instruction. These priests were causing men to sin with their perverse instruction, born out of selfish motives. Because of this, the Lord would ruin their reputation to be one of shame. After rebuking the priests for their evil offerings with which they despised God's altar and their crooked teaching, God addresses covenant unfaithfulness, which has become rampant in the nation. This is the A in our outline. A is for adultery. Adultery against God and Jewish wives is condemned. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Have we not all one Father? Has not God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. There should be a unity and a continuity within the people of God. They are all descendants of the same patriarchs, all share in the same promises, all belong to the same God. But they're sinning against each other. There's adulterous treachery going on. And they're sinning against their fathers who had received the covenants from God. Verse 11, Judah has been faithless, 
and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Both in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we have recorded there how the people had drifted right back into the same idolatry that got them exiled from the land in the first place, that had incurred God's judgment. And how it started was intermarrying with the peoples of the lands and establishing covenant relationships with people who were idol worshipers. And it was especially bad because we learn in those books that really it was the leaders who were leading the way in this sin. They were the foremost in committing this sin. Now look at what God says in verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. God doesn't accept their offerings. He doesn't hear their prayers. Their prayers seem sincere, at least emotionally earnest, but God isn't listening. God didn't hear the prayers of the priests because they had despised his prescribed offerings. And now he doesn't hear these prayers because they have despised the covenant they made before God to the wife of their youth. Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you had been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Apparently, they weren't only marrying into these idolatrous foreign families, but they were divorcing their Jewish wives to do so. Amazing the hardness that can happen in the human heart, that it could break the vow made before God to a faithful wife, marry into an idol-worshiping family, and then expect God to answer prayer. It is not possible to act in rebellion to God the Father and then expect Him to answer prayers. You know, by the way, uh, Peter conveys a similar idea to the church. In 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, verse 7, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. We're all joint heirs with God, and we're supposed to line up under His authority, wives submitting to husbands, husbands caring for wives, if a husband isn't provided proper or if a husband isn't providing proper care to his wife, how can he expect help from God? Drop down to verse 16 of chapter 2. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, I'm reading most of these scriptures out of the ESV, but uh, in the NASB, that first line would be translated, for I hate divorce. The warning here is clear. God's call on this behavior is that it's violent and murderous and bloody, and it must be guarded against in their spirits. Verse 17. And look, at, uh, look here at verse 17. God's been giving these serious accusations to the priests, this serious accusation of this idolatry and adultery. And look at the people's response. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? 
by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? The people's response to all this is to blame God for the evil they see around them. They accuse God of approving of evil. It is so bad that God says they have wearied him. They have asked, where is God? Now, isn't that just like lost humanity? It's just like what Vince shared this morning about the nature of ungodliness, that the ungodly find someone worse than themselves and then blame God for not dealing with them. We never want to say, what about me? But praise the Lord, he intervenes. This brings us to the the S in our outline. S, send. God will send a messenger to introduce the sovereign Savior. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God will send his messenger. The priests should have been his messengers. The entire nation was supposed to be God's witness nation, but they were so corrupted by the filth of sin that what they needed was a cleaning team. They needed God's messenger to reintroduce them to their God so they could recognize him. We have the benefit of knowing who this messenger is, of course. Jesus tells us that this is John the Baptist, Matthew 11:10, And his major job was to call the nation to repent so that they would be ready to receive the Lord himself. The people were asking, where is God? God says, I'm going to show up and you better be ready. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But this would not be a mission of deliverance out of the rule of the Gentiles or a deliverance from poverty. This is about dealing with the filth of the nation's sins. Verse 2, But who can endure in the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. God is coming like the fire of a forge to burn away the grit and grime of the nation's sin. He is coming like a pressure washer with bleaches and powerful soaps to scour away their sin. Verse 3, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. He's going to sit down. He's going to take his time. He is going to polish the priests till they can actually produce something presentable to God. All their corruption and pollution will be burned off and scoured off and buffed off by the Lord himself. Of course, we know this is the Lord Jesus who will accomplish this. We recall how much the Jewish leaders hated him because he always went straight to addressing their sin. In his first coming, he was rejected as part of God's plan that he would be the righteous offering, able to cleanse away sin with his own blood. All who look to him for salvation will find it and will get into his kingdom when the cleansing of the nation of Israel will be complete. God will make this happen. And now he gives us the reason why. 
Verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Here in the middle of the book, we have a tremendous statement on the character of God. His changelessness, His justice, His wrath, His mercy, and His faithfulness are all reflected in this statement. The bottom line is, God will keep His word. God doesn't break promises. God in His wisdom and sovereign power will accomplish all He has promised for Israel. And His faithfulness is the only reason it will happen. The reason the children of Jacob are not consumed is because God chose Jacob. The nation of Israel has dishonored God, despised God, wearied God with their words, and been unfaithful to God. But God has not changed. God still loves them. Ever since God made the covering of animal hides for Adam and Eve, He has been faithfully working to provide a way for sinful man to still receive His love and care. Ever since the garden, mankind has despised God, wearied God, and been unfaithful to God. But God has not changed. He is always faithful to the promises He has made. The nation of Israel's future is secure because it is guaranteed by the changeless living God. This reality is precious to us as Christians as well. The idea that God doesn't change, that He always keeps His promises. We think of uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God expects this truth, that He has continued to love Israel, despite what they've done, to cause them to realize they need to repent. So our T in our outline is for turn. Turn back to God in repentance. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Ever since the time Moses went up the mountain and the people quickly turned to making a golden calf and worshiping it, the nation has had a bent towards abandoning God. Yet God stands in the same place faithful, ever ready to care for them according to the good promises he has made. Malachi repeats the words that Zechariah spoke 75 years before when the people were wavering in their dedication to rebuild the temple. Return to me, and I will return to you. As this becomes the last altar call of the Old Testament. Drop down to verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down to you a blessing until there is no more need. The people had not been regarding the commands of the Lord, even the most basic instruction of giving tithes to the temple. God now challenges them to put him to the test. They have tried doing it their way, and the result has been unmet needs. Why not try God's way? 
By the way, many people who feel compelled to raise money these days dip back to verses like this to try to get Christians to give money. This is really not appropriate. Uh, The tithe in the Old Testament was a basic requirement of the law. It's not a gift at all. Uh, And the Old Testament and the nation of Israel lived under the clear promise that if they obeyed God's law, they would have physical prosperity. The, The New Testament instructions to Christians put a larger emphasis on a heart that wants to give and on seeing physical resources as something to manage in a prudent way for God according to individual circumstances. We could look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9 if we wanted to study that. But let's look at uh, the final point in our outline here, and that's the A, assurance. Assurance given to the God-fearing remnant. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. This message that Malachi brought caused the remnant who feared the Lord to begin talking to each other. We're not told what they talked about, but the Lord responds to it by giving them his assurance that they are not overlooked and they are not forgotten and they will be spared when the judgment incurred by the nation arrives. John MacArthur writes, To encourage the godly remnant, Malachi noted how the Lord had not forgotten those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. The book may be, the book referenced, may be a reference to the book of life in which the names of God's children are recorded. The Persians had a custom of recording in all the books or excuse me, the Persians had a custom of recording in a book all the acts of a person that should be rewarded in the future. You might remember an example of that when Dwight went through Esther, right? He recorded the, the good deed of Mordecai, and then later on a night when he couldn't sleep, he found it. So maybe there's a picture there. All right, verse 17. They are all mine, says the Lord of hosts. He's speaking of the remnant. In the day when I make my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. In the day of the Lord, when God intervenes in judgment, then the truth of who is faithful to him will be plainly revealed. Those who feared God in their hearts will be preserved as if they were God's own son. Verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. In the day of the Lord, the wicked will be burned away in the judgment of Christ. He will be the refiner's fire to remove wickedness from the earth. But the righteous, on the other hand, will find it a new day and a new beginning, and they will be like a young calf that just has to run and has to leap and has to kick because it can. 
And they will feel the need to celebrate just the joy of being alive. The wicked will be gone, consigned to the dust of the earth. And with the wicked gone, the new growth of Messiah's kingdom will begin. And with this in mind, God gives the righteous a couple of instructions. Verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Number one, keep the law that I gave you. This was always the key to Israel having good success. And God's desire and command was that they keep the law. Number two, know that God will turn the nation's hearts back again to the Lord. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah will come before the great day of judgment. Empowered by God, he will turn the people's hearts back to the Lord. No longer will they dishonor God, despise God, weary God, and be unfaithful to God. No longer will they treat his children wrongly as they had been unfaithful to their wives. Then, just as a son should honor his father, the nation will honor their God. And in so doing, they will also honor their fathers, the patriarchs who had obeyed God. All relationships from God down to a child will be right and in perfect harmony. God will accomplish this through one of his messengers, Elijah. Because of his faithful changelessness, his faithful love, God will deliver them just in time from the curse of his wrath demanded by his holiness. So that's Malachi. Love pasta. Love for God of Israel. The love of God for Israel does not change. The priests are rebuked for their evil offerings and misleading teaching. Adultery against God and Jewish wives is condemned. Sending a messenger to introduce the sovereign Savior. Turn back to God in repentance. Assurance and instruction given to the God-fearing remnant. And since these things are written for our example, and we have a few minutes, I'll make a small application. We live in the last days. They are days of apostasy. All around us, there are people who claim to be God's church, but really they give the Lord no honor and do not obey his word. So what do we do? It's really a very similar situation to the instructions Malachi gave the remnant in Israel. We are to remember the teaching Christ gave us through the apostles and look forward to our deliverance when we are united with Christ in the rapture. We wait confidently, knowing that our God loves us and that he never changes. I'll close with the words of Paul in his instructions to the church in 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 through 24. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, 
but always seek to do good to one another and everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise the prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the example of the nation of Israel, that even though there's so much sin there, so much unfaithfulness, that you were always working, and you always had a remnant. And we thank you for this book about your messenger and the warnings against abandoning your instruction and the encouragement to those who fear you. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have in the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, in the meantime, we pray you strengthen us to follow our basic instructions, to live righteous lives, that we might be a light to the people around us, like we heard this morning, and, and be able to share you with them, and that we might be the, the right kind of testimony, where we actually fear you and want to know what you say and want to obey it. Lord, we thank you for this evening that we have had, and we just praise you for the time in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.